Well, I'd love to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 today. Um, if you do not have one with you, I would greatly encourage you to grab one. Um, under the seat in front of you, there should be a Bible. If there's not one directly in front of you, look over to your left or over to your right, because generally they're kind of on the aisle sides of the rows. Lucy, you need to go back now. <laughs> That's okay. All right, so grab a Bible. We're in the book of Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. And in chapter 1, we're thankful today to get to look at his word and to hear from God what he has said so clearly spoken to us about his son Jesus. We've been in a series through Lent that ended last week, or you could consider that it ended today, um, looking at the idea of because he died. What kind of impact does that make on our lives? It has every impact because he died. But when we come to this Sunday morning, this resurrection day, we need to change our title from because he died to because he is risen. And so because he is risen, the mystery of redemption is revealed. And that's what we're going to see in Ephesians 1. So are you there? This is the most important thing we're going to do all day today. More important than the sermon, even more important than the beautiful songs, even more important than our time in prayer. All those things are greatly important, but hearing from God's word in these next moments is the most essential, that we might know what he has to say to us. And know that what he has to say in his word today, he has to say to you specifically today. It was his plan. He knows all things. He knew that we were going to land in this passage today. So would you open up your hearts as you open up his word to hear from what he has to say. This is Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 10. In him, that is Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Would you pray with me once more before we consider these things? Our Father, we thank you this Sunday that your word is just as real, just as powerful, and just as true in this moment as it has ever been. What you have said stands the test of time and endures to the end of the age. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen to speak to us, not to leave us where we were in our place of need, but to make a way for us to, draw, to be drawn back to you through your son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would do a work this morning to unite all things in Christ according to the mystery of your plan of redemption. Lord, we pray that you would establish your people, that you would strengthen us and build us up in our most holy faith, that we might serve you well and live in the joy and the satisfaction and the peace of Christ alone. We thank you that we are in him, that we can be in him by faith because of what he's done. Help us now, Lord. Send your spirit into every heart that the truth of your word might sink deep into our lives and be the established foundation that we lean on every moment. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're wondering what an Ephesian is, it's somebody who lives in Ephesus. And Paul wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' helpers, one of his messengers, wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. And this letter is really, really important in the canon of Scripture, just as any other letter, just as any other book is. But one of the things that you might have noticed, even in our few verses that we read, is that that was an entire sentence. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. And one of the things that always sticks out to me in the book of Ephesians is that in this first section, you have, well, let's see, in the first, the first chapter, you have 23 verses, but you don't have nearly that many sentences. What you get is a lot of commas, a break in thought, but a connection to the next thought. And this is how Paul writes elsewhere, but especially in Ephesians, we see him writing about the depth of the mystery of God's plan for the world in Christ. And he just can't seem to pack a sentence enough, can he? There's more and more and more to say. It's a beautiful, what we call a doxology, just a, a hymn of praise to the Lord for us to consider on a day like Easter morning. It presents to us the beauty of what God has chosen to do in the world. A lot of people imagine that God exists as a righteous and perfect judge who is simply and only waiting to squash all the people that he can. That we might have some experience of thinking about his, uh, something from his word. You know, we think about perhaps the Ten Commandments and you think, boy, the Ten Commandments, like, they could be kind of harsh sometimes, right? Because Jesus came in and he said, you know that it is said that you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you have hatred in your heart for someone, that you've committed murder in your heart. When we consider God's standard, what we're considering is something that is far higher than we could ever possibly imagine, far higher than we could ever attain, something we could never even get close to. And the fact is, is that God's standard is a perfect standard, and he leaves no room for errors, and the problem that we have is a lot of errors, right? The Bible says that when we go against God's word and his will, that is sin. And sin is not simply a mistake, simply a, you know, a tripping over a cord that you didn't notice was there that you are innocent of the guilt of, right? Sin is a rebellion against who God is. It is something in our hearts that turns us away from his goodness to seek our own. And from the cosmic perspective where God sits, there is no greater crime that can be committed than to see the goodness of God and say, I'd rather have something else. And his goodness most clearly shown to us on what we call Good Friday, when Jesus hung on a cross, executed by Roman officials, suffering anguish and terrible physical torment, and yet the Bible says that it was in fact God himself God the Father who crushed his son, we read in Isaiah 53 the other night. It was God who poured out the wrath against all of our sin on his one and only son so that we could have a way to come back to him. Not so that he could say, hey, the path is clear, now show me the best that you've got. But to say the path is clear and the path is a person. As we read just a moment ago in the Jesus Storybook Bible, Jesus told his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't just wipe your slate clean so you can do something to impress him. 
he puts on your account his righteousness, his right standing before God, so that you might have that as well. And that is why Paul writes in just these few verses such a long sentence that that is packed with far more than we could divulge in just a Sunday morning. But it presents to us the beauty of God's plan. It corrects any misconceptions we have about God, thinking that he is simply against me. No, he is for us. He loves to redeem sinners. And so in Christ, the mystery of redemption is revealed. If you don't know what redemption means, we're going to define that in a second. But I want you to consider the beauty of Easter morning, of new life, of resurrection power. That he who was terribly disfigured and marred and his body was destroyed, just simply crushed on the cross, has been given a brand new body, a brand new life. He's conquered death so that you might do the same. This is a beautiful thing. And so I want to ask you, what beauty have you noticed in your life that leads you to awe and wonder? Have you been somewhere or experienced something, you know, had that trip to the Grand Canyon or perhaps seen a baby born, and and you sense that awe and that beauty of of creation, of something wonderful that's happened. You might even think, you know, these these beautiful daffodils here are just a, a small sign of God's goodwill to us. In those moments of awe and wonder over what he's created, he's not saying, hey, look, I just want you to look at my creation and nothing else. Because that's where we kind of get things wrong. That's why we sin in the first place. Because we worship the creation more than the creator. We look at something created to satisfy us in a way that only the creator can do. So what beauty has led you to awe and wonder? And would you consider with me today the beauty of redemption? What is redemption? Redemption is just buying back. It's a ransom that's paid in full. As I said earlier, the wages of sin is death. What we get for our sin is just simply death. It might not sound that bad because we know death is a real thing and it's something that everyone in the world has to deal with. But the Bible says that separation from God and death is an eternal status that we spend away from all of his goodness and simply experiencing his wrath experiencing what Christ experienced on the cross for us. Only what he was able to absorb and satisfy in a matter of hours would take us an eternity to satisfy. The beauty of the cross is not something that you can see in a a man hanging on it and being uh, destroyed physically, but it is something that that is revealed to us in this mystery through his word that Christ has satisfied and redeemed us, bought us back by his blood. I want to read to you from Isaiah 44, 21 through 23 as we consider this idea of redemption. So just listen to these words. This is uh, God speaking to his covenant people Israel um, many, many years before Jesus would even walk the earth and fulfill this plan. But God says this to his people, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. 
I don't know if you noticed as you were listening, but so many of the things that God is talking about doing are in the past tense. They've already happened. I formed you. I have blotted out your transgressions. I have redeemed you. The Lord has done it. The Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified. The mystery of redemption is revealed to us in Christ 2,000 years since the act of redemption even happened. Our salvation was purchased, accomplished, and offered to us before we even took a breath because the Lord knew that we would need it. We must respond to this. You, if you don't know Christ today, and you, you need to respond to what he's done, and, and you will respond in one way or another. And that's where we kind of come into the call this morning that his word has for us. Because his plan is accomplished, because this mystery is revealed in Christ, in him, those first two words that we read this morning is beautiful words. In him we have redemption through his blood, not in yourselves. Not in another person, not in a deed. But because this mystery is revealed in him, we must embrace that plan of redemption and become active participants in Christ as all things are summed up in him. Do you have your Bibles open still? Look at verse 10 again. As a plan for the fullness of time, this is God's plan, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And all the things that will not be united in him will be separated from him. Those are the only two options. This mystery is revealed to us. It is made clear. And this is an important Sunday, believer, non-believer, wherever you are, to respond actively to participate in worship, to participate in a life of worship, to come to a place where you say, yes, the mystery of redemption is revealed in Christ and I'm going to be swept up and united with him. This idea of union with Christ is, is literally talking about this idea of, of everything being summed up in Christ. And it begs this question for us this morning, what does your life sum up to? What does it add up to? Does it add up to Christ? When you take every element, you take, I don't know, however you delineate your life, but to take your family, your work, your neighborhood, your hobbies, all these kind of things. If you were to do a math equation and put them all in a row, what would be after the equal sign? Would it equal simply yourself? Or would it equal Christ? This is a difficult call for us to hear this morning. In him, all things will come together and be brought together in union. But God is indeed calling us to this. I know I used this illustration a while back, but I'm going to use it again because it's been really, really helpful for me. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis many years ago, there's uh, one of the books, this is from The Magician's Nephew. And as Aslan is creating, Aslan is the lion, the one who represents Christ in the story. And Aslan is creating Narnia, and, and uh, this, this boy Diggory and his uncle and some others um, come into Narnia in the midst of all of this, and they're just amazed at, at what Aslan is doing to put all these things together. And, and it's an interesting story what happens, but, but Diggory notices that his uncle, who's, who's just been kind of a pain this entire story, is, is just freaked out by what's going on. He can't get over the talking animals and the lion that's there. He's just terrified. And so Diggory goes to Aslan and says, hey, can you just say something to him to calm him down a little bit? Not that he was worried about his uncle. He was just really annoyed with him. Listen to what Aslan says. 
Diggory says, would you talk to him? And Aslan says, if I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. Aslan says that if I came over and tried to say, hey, listen, everything's okay, you need to relax a little bit, all he would hear was the growling and roaring of a, of a mad lion, because that's all he'd be able to perceive. Because everything that we've talked about thus far, about what God has done for us in Christ, and how we are meant to respond, leads us to this question of how am I going to respond? Can I even respond? And like uh, this uncle before Aslan is unable to hear the word of God. So we in our sin are closed off to listening to and responding to the idea that all things would add up to and sum up to Jesus Christ. We want things to add up to ourselves. We want to live our lives in what we define as freedom, in our own perception of victory and of the goodness of life. And this is our conflict. In him, as a phrase, doesn't work for us. We want it to be in me, all things united in me, all things summing up to me. And, and maybe you might even say, well, I don't care if everybody worships me. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is that when you look at the tra trajectory of your life, the path that you're on, the things that you prioritize, the way you live before God, apart from him, you don't want to add up things to Christ. You want to add up things to yourself. That's the plight of every human being who's ever walked the face of this earth except for one. Along with that, the world presents both attractions and worries for us to make ultimate in our lives, to make that thing that all things add up to. It doesn't make it easier for us. We may look at this idea of, of letting our lives be summed up in who Christ is and say, well, what's the guarantee with that? What is it that I'm really going to get? Because it sounds like so far all I'm doing is losing things. It sounds like I'm supposed to look and say, wow, it's amazing that he died for me. It's amazing that he rose from the grave. And I guess he deserves it, but what is it that I'm actually going to get? This is why we can't move forward. This is why we struggle to move forward because our flesh is crying out to us and saying, yeah, what about me? And the world is crying out to us and saying, yeah, but listen, I can give you all these things to shoot for, to worry about, to be concerned over, to focus your attention on away from the empty tomb, away from the cross. We look at things like our marriages, our careers, our home, our home building, our cars, our buying things, our health care, and these are all counterintuitive to the guarantee that we hope for. We don't want to enter into something unless we know that it's going to work out. And maybe we can convince ourselves, hey, this marriage, this car, this home, this health care plan, whatever the thing is, it's going to work out because I just really believe it. There are no guarantees in this life except for death and taxes, as they say, right? That's what we have to look forward to apart from seeing what the creator has designed for us in Christ. Besides our own plans and desires, besides the world that offers us alternatives, we have an active enemy, somebody, nobody, somebody that we don't really like to talk about usually. And certainly, why would we bring up the devil or Satan on Sunday morning when we're celebrating Easter? But he becomes the persistent cheerleader of your own selfishness. This is his greatest trick. He's behind you every time you have a selfish opportunity, waving pom-poms, saying, go for it. You can do it. That's how lame he is. But that's what he wants to do. He wants to convince you that what you're doing for yourself is going to satisfy you when the Bible says that 
there's none who does righteous, no, not one. And again, the wages of our sin is death. That's what we are getting for ourselves when we work for ourselves. Thomas Watson was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s, and he said this about the devil. He said, when lust or anger, that is when we want something that we cannot have, or anger when we are allowing our sinful nature to well up in us and and be opposed to God, when lust or anger burns in our soul, Satan warms himself at the fire. It's exactly what the enemy wants us to do, to turn ourselves inward, to see there is no great mystery of redemption that is better than the mystery of what I can reveal to myself, what I can redeem myself with, what I can decide for my own pleasure, my own joy. And the world is just throwing heaps onto the fire. Distractions, um, things to worry about, anxieties, other goals, living for self. And it is the true design of this world to divide into tribes of anger. I don't know if you notice that in your day-to-day life. I mean, we do it on a pretty, pretty basic, simple, silly level when we talk about sports teams, right? Baseball season just started, and there's rivalries in there, right? And we love to talk about how terrible that team is and how good our team is. And I hope most of it is in fun and there's no real anger or malice given towards a person who wears a Yankees hat, for instance. If you're a Yankees fan, it's okay. God still loves you. But even on a silly level, we do those kind of divisions, but then we divide on other things too. We divide by red and blue political parties, don't we? And you know that the the, the world system, apart from Christ, loves to see that kind of division because it keeps us focused on ourselves and fighting against each other because we think that that other person who's out there for themselves is out there against us as well. This is why God's mystery of redemption is revealed in Christ as a plan to unite all things in Christ, to unify his creation around what he intended in the first place. He never intended for us to be divided up on our own paths or our own desires, our own thinking. I wonder today if you feel that pressure of division in the world to clearly put yourself on one side or another, whether right or wrong, Forget about that for a second, although I know that's why we choose our sides and everything, because we think we're right. But do you realize that so often what we are actually doing when we say, I'm going to stand for this thing, I may be, in fact, just standing in opposition primarily to someone else. Makes things trickier than what it seems to be up front. And God wants to unite all things in Christ all these things that apart from his plan, apart from him and our divisions and our own mindsets and desires of self-absorption is only going to lead to death. And what what Good Friday and Easter Sunday have to tell us is that Christ has fully conquered death. He has overcome it. Can you imagine? And what we did on Friday evening, um, as we ended our service, we left in silence and just kind of thinking about What would it have been like to walk away from the cross, especially if you were one of Jesus' disciples? You would have expected him to bring the kingdom of God right here, right now, to make everything right and perfect right now, and he's died. And he's not only died like, oh, a terrible accident happened, but the world has come up against him and crucified him. And his disciples, as we, again, read in the Jesus Storybook Bible, were afraid. They were in a room with the door locked. Thomas is hiding under the table. I don't know what to do. He's gone. Can you imagine the joy when he comes into the room and says, what's for breakfast? 
Can you imagine what that meant in that moment when the disciples saw him face to face again? Death no longer had any victory over Christ. And for those who are in Christ, who will come into this plan of redemption and be united in him, death has no victory over us. Paul says that the sting of sin is in death, and death has no victory. It has no sting. It has no power over those who are in Christ. Yeah, our bodies will decay. We will die one day. We all will. But that will not be the end. And it won't be some second part, some new addition. David writes in the Psalms, when I awake... I will be satisfied in your presence. And just in that word, awake. When Jesus came back and we we read that he had a new body that couldn't die anymore, this was what it was supposed to be like. What we will awaken to in Christ is what God intended in the first place, what he has designed us to be. He knew we would fall. He knew we would need a savior. And that's why his grace abounds to us. Look at verse 8. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, the end of verse 7 says, which he lavished upon us all. This word lavished has got a really cool alternative word. It's superabound. I love that word. I've been just sitting on that all week. God's grace in Christ to us superabounds. I can't help but think of Superman jumping over a building. Can you? Super abounding grace. What is grace? It's you getting a good thing that you've never deserved. And this is what we have, his riches of grace. This God who we may think, boy, as messed up as the world is, God must only be mad. He must only have wrath for us. And he does have anger at the evil that's going on in the world. And if you are not in Christ, the Bible says that you are an enemy of God. But in Christ, the riches of his grace superabounds to you right now. We who are helpless, getting a good thing we don't deserve and could never earn on our own. The mystery of God's love is revealed to rebellious and helpless sinners. And that's all we really are before him apart from Christ. Our self-absorption, our lust, our anger, our inability to hear the voice of the Lion of Judah correctly and only hear roarings and growlings shows us. Apart from him, we have no hope. We, like the rest of the world, will simply implode on ourselves. The empty tomb proves that his grace has become effective towards us as well. He shows us at the cross what he would go through in order to bring you back. And the tomb being empty reveals to us that he's one. You know, there's a lot of people in the world who have a lot of questions. Does God really exist? If God exists, why this? If God didn't exist, would this be this way? All sorts of different questions you can ask about God. But you're not going to actually come into a realization. You're not going to come into the point where the redemption mystery is revealed unless you come to the empty tomb. And recognize there is no body of Jesus anywhere in the world. No one's ever been able to find it because it's not here. He's risen. He's ascended to heaven. Can you find him on the earth? Yes. In the lives of his people. Changing his lives. Your testimony, believer. What we've been talking about so far this year. Our theme of testify is so essential to the gospel message spreading through the world. Because you are a living picture of God's super abounding grace. 
This is a beautiful mystery that the world needs to see, needs to hear, needs to receive. To know that he has redeemed his people. That redemption was accomplished before you even had the chance to say yes to Jesus. That's how serious God is. So I wonder, is there a resistance in you this morning to letting your life be summed up in him, in Christ? To receive that super abundance of grace. Would you take a good look this morning at what he has done and proven in the empty tomb and in the cross that he was killed on? Would you take a moment and consider and humbly ask for that superabounding grace to be poured out in your life? It may not look like you expect it to, but if God is in charge, if he's the creator, he knows what you really need. He is not against you. He is for you. He has superabounding grace for you to receive. Can you hear his voice in his word? Or does it just sound like roarings and growlings? We sang this song on Friday called Come, O Sinner. Listen to the last verse. Come, O Sinner, come rejoice. Mercy fills this place of scorn. For he dies to save his enemies that all who draw near may know his peace. Come, O sinner, come rejoice. Through the death of Christ, death is destroyed. If all things in your life sum up in you, there is only death to look forward to. But if your life sums up to Christ, if you will give him your life because he's given you his, then you have a victory over death. You have a confidence in him that his tomb is empty, that he is alive, and that he has redeemed you by his blood. You are his. The mystery of redemption is fully revealed. He wants us to respond to this. We can't on our own unless Christ intervenes, and he has. I want you to just imagine here for a second. Christ is ready, full of grace in his arms, to pour out into your life. Not that everything's going to be perfect. Not that all your problems are going to go away. But something better than that will happen. You have a sure hope and foundation in him this morning that he was serious about what he did at the cross. That it is proven by the empty grave. And that we can, in Christ, because of his life on our behalf, his death in our place and the resurrection, proving to him that his grace is extended to us, we can have our lives sum up in Christ. We can be encouraged by his grace. He's conquered death on our behalf. You can embrace that grace daily through his word, through fellowship with other believers, through prayer. He wants to talk to you. He wants to be in right relationship with you and know you personally. Not just as somebody sitting on a funny pink chair on Sunday morning. He knows you. He knows more about you than you do. And yet he still loves you. We can embrace the mystery of redemption. Just as he wrote to Israel in Isaiah 44, redemption is accomplished and it's offered to you. It's for us to walk in as his people, to refresh on day by day by day, not just letting Easter be the day that we say, oh, that's right, he did that for me, but every day to say the reason that I wake up out of bed and get up is because he's gotten up out of the tomb and has redeemed me, bought me back for himself. When we doubt, we can remember that he dies to save his enemies, that all who draw near may know his peace. We have doubts. It makes sense. We wonder, is all this true? Am I really living rightly? Am I? No, if 
if we have doubts, if we wonder about our own weakness, we need to embrace it. Yeah, we are weak, but Christ is strong. He's the one who's conquered death. He's loved us, his enemies, in such a brilliant way, such a, such a mysterious way that we could never fathom. And lastly, if you are in Christ, you are called not only to enjoy those things, but to proclaim the good news of that to all of creation. To testify to what he's done in your life so that others might see it and be drawn to him. You don't need to draw people. You don't need to impress people. Just like you didn't need to impress God. You don't need to impress others. We're called to testify, to just say, this is what Jesus has done for me. He can do it for you as well. He can give you life. You tell others what Christ has done for us and for them. To call them to sum their lives up in Christ as well. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we pray this morning, first, just recognizing that there may be someone in, in our midst, and online perhaps, that doesn't know Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would show them the kindness, the superabounding grace in Christ that you've made freely available to us. We don't have to perform, we don't have to impress, we don't have to produce, we just simply have to trust. We need to repent. We need to turn from our old ways, turn from our divisions, turn from our self-absorptions and trust Christ alone. To not look to other things in the world to satisfy us when Christ alone has promised to satisfy every desire of our hearts. I pray, Father, for those that may not have that knowledge, who may not have that relationship, that newness of life that the empty tomb depicts for us, Lord. Would you grant that to them by your grace? Would you grant your people to be established in this superabounding grace today, that they might serve you wholeheartedly, Lord, out of joy, out of appreciation and excitement for what Christ has done? not out of cold religious duty, not to earn something or to pay you back, but to simply walk in what you've made us to be. To marvel at the mystery of redemption, to look and see our God. We thank you that you've made a way. We praise you this morning for it in Jesus' name. Amen.